we are going to jump into a series on uh, a topic that if you've been in church for a while, you've probably not heard a lot of teaching on. I know I haven't heard a lot of teaching on. And we're going to take three weeks to look at the nature of the Trinity. Now, um, the reason you haven't heard a lot about it is because one of the things I've said for a long time is when you're teaching on the Trinity, once you go about 90 seconds in, you get into heresy because it's like it, it's so hard to hold all of these ideas together in your head. And that's what we're going to seek to do. Uh, the series is called Life in the Dance. Is that right? The Dance of God. There we go. The Dance of God. It's called something about the dance. <laughs> Dan, I needed you, man. Come on. I needed you. <laughs> The dance of God, that actually is taken from a Greek word. The Greek word is perichoresis. And um, the, the early church fathers used that word perichoresis to talk about the Trinity. Uh, that word para means around or circular, and choresis means to dwell in or uh, to be about. But it comes from the root word uh, that is the root word for choreography, uh, for dance. And so uh, historically... The, the church fathers saw the Trinity as a bit of a circular dance of three persons engaged in this dance together. But that's not quite right because that idea of choresis is, is far more intimate and far more connected even than a dance is. There's a oneness and intimacy that's tied into the Trinity. Jürgen Mortmann uh, makes this statement the divine persons exist not only in relationship to one another, but also in one another. Do you get that in your head? No? Not quite yet? Okay, we're going to have to walk through this a bit as we kind of try to get this idea of the intimacy of the community of the Trinity. In fact, I'm going to give you kind of a working definition that I've pulled from a bunch of different places and kind of uh, work together for the next three weeks. Um, that definition is this, that the Trinity, I'll put it up on the screen, is an eternal, intimate community of love. The Trinity is an eternal, intimate community of love. And the reason why it's so hard to talk about the Trinity is because as we start to try to figure out what all of that means with three persons together eternally um, flowing from one another and within one another, um, intimately connected in a community of love, we start to trip over our own uh, human understanding. And so in order to kind of set the stage, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, actually declare a creed over you. Now, normally with creeds, you're the ones uh, declaring it. We declare it together, and that would be very appropriate. But for this instance, I want you to try to do your best to engage what is on the screen and what I'm saying, not just to say it, but to listen to it. Um, in the fourth century, there was a, a thinker called Athanasius, and Athanasius spent a lot of time trying to kind of get the, the pieces of the Trinity understood and put together. And after his death, there was a creed developed out of his thinking called the Athanasian Creed. And I'm just going to read the first half of it to you. And so it'll be on the screen. You'll also hear me reading it. Try your best to kind of grab a hold of what's being said. 
Let me start before I start reading. Um, That word in the first sentence is this is the Catholic faith. I get questions about it all the time when we do creeds. When you see that word Catholic in a creed, it's the adjective form of Catholic, not the proper noun form of Catholic. So when I talk about the Catholic faith, faith, we're not talking about the Catholic church, as you know the Catholic church, but rather Catholic meaning universal or um, the kind of the orthodox faith uh, that has been passed down through all generations. So with that in mind, listen. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth, oop, go back. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity, but it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. All right, you get all that? Everybody have it fully understood? All right, let's worship. Okay, so, um, so, so the challenge of holding all of this together is that our brains can't get there right? Like you hear all of that stuff and it starts to, okay, I think I got it. Oh no, I don't have it. Like, oh, okay, I got it. Nope, I don't have it. Which is why all of the illustrations we have for the Trinity are actually heresy. And all of the ways of describing the Trinity start to trip us into things that are clearly outside of scriptures. Um, There's a quote, my very favorite Advent quote, um, I'm actually going to use now, I know it's a couple weeks after Advent, but uh, it ties together beautifully. This is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, from his work, God in the Manger. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. No priest, no theologian stood at the manger of Bethlehem. 
And yet all Christian theology has its origin in the wonder of all wonders, that God became human. Without the holy night, there is no theology. God is revealed in the flesh. The God-human Jesus Christ, that is the holy mystery that theology came into being to protect and preserve. How we fail to understand when we think that the task of theology is to solve the mystery of God, to drag it down to the flat, ordinary wisdom of human experience and reason. Its sole office, that of holy theology, is to preserve the miracle as miracle, to comprehend, defend, and glorify God's mystery precisely as mystery. This and nothing else, therefore, is what the early church meant when, with never flagging zeal, it dealt with the mystery of the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ. What I love about Bonhoeffer's quote is that phrase, that idea, preserving mystery as mystery. This side of the Enlightenment for the last several hundred years in the West, we are laser focused on figuring it out. And the reason you don't hear a lot of talk about the Trinity is that no, much, no matter how much effort you put into figuring it out, you're not going to figure it out. I'm not going to figure it out. I've spent a ton of time in the last couple months and really over the last several years digging into a lot of different writings and understandings of the Trinity. And I'm not sure I understand any more now than when I started. There are windows. And those windows are the, the beauty through which we can begin to see the glory of God. And so what I hope to do over the next three weeks is just give a window in to give us a place to start to worship the mystery as mystery, preserving the miracle as miracle, something that we can't, can't at all understand and yet has been revealed to us in a way that we can be in awe before him. And so to begin, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14. What's called the upper room discourse, the last teachings of Jesus before he goes to the cross recorded in the Gospel of John, are full of Trinitarian language. In fact, one of the few places where the scriptures are very explicit about Trinitarian language. Jesus, as he teaches the disciples, refers again and again to both the Father and the Spirit or the Comforter who would come. And he begins to weave together for us these truths of the Trinity. And so we're going to ground ourselves in several passages from uh, this upper room discourse over the next several weeks. And so I'm going to invite Kevin to come. He's going to read for us starting in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 29. So would you listen as the word of God is read for us today? All right. Morning, everyone. This is from the ESV translation, John 14, 15 to 29. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Would you pray with me? Jesus, the mystery and in front of us is great, and so save us, save me from thinking that we have anything figured out, but rather, would you teach us by your spirit? And thank you for the insight of your word. Thank you for the truth throughout the centuries that have helped us grab hold of this mystery. And now, God, I pray that over the next couple weeks, you would open these truths to our hearts. Would you guard my words that they would come from you alone? That the words that come from my strength and understanding and my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But the words that come from your spirit, your spirit that is guiding us into all truth. God, may those words land and may they grow up and bear much fruit. And so speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning, what I want to do is uh, look at three different aspects of love revealed to us in the Trinitarian God. I want to look, first look at the idea of love described. What does the scripture say to us about the love of the Trinity. And then love embodied. What does it mean that Jesus came, sent out of the Trinitarian God to be one of us, to love us with his life? And then finally, love multiplied. What does it look like for us to engage in these truths? Because it's really easy with the Trinity to stay very theoretical and not move into the practical. But I want us to step each week into the practical truths of what it means that we serve a Trinitarian God. So love described, love embodied, and love multiplied. There's a short little book on the Trinity called Experiencing the Trinity by Daryl Johnson. Um, if you are interested in reading some more, one of the things that we're doing all year this year through our series is giving you some recommended readings uh, to go along with our series. We do, we're doing that because um, I get asked by individuals all the time to recommend things, and so rather than that, I'm just going to give it all to you at one time. So um, I, if you only read one book on the Trinity, there's a little book, it was only published a couple years ago, called Experiencing the Trinity by Daryl Johnson. Really excellent work, but the, the questions that he asked, he says, when we study the Trinity, there are two questions we should ask. One, what does it mean? And two, what does it matter? 
And so those are the two questions that we're going to wrestle with today. The first uh, section Love described is really all about what it means. And then we're going to flow into the second two. What does it matter? Why do I care? So that's where we're going to go today. And as we look at what it means, we need to push back into this idea of mystery as mystery. Because as I try to describe and as I start to walk through this, we're going to bump up against ways that we can't fully understand. And that's part of the glory of who God is and the goodness of who God is. So I want to show you uh, first an illustration. One of the things you'll find is that when people talk about the Trinity, there are a variety of different um, descriptions that are seen. And so uh, go ahead to the next slide. Um, There's this... Uh, this triangle, you've maybe seen this before, you may have seen it also with a circle in the center of it. And those three lines, three persons, equality of persons, and monotheism, when, when you talk about the Trinity, you have to hold on to all three of those at the same time. So if you picture yourself inside of that triangle, you're holding on to monotheism with your feet, and you're holding on to equality of persons and three persons with your arms. And, and if you let any of them go you start to slide into heresy. And that's what this triangle is, uh, is trying to illustrate. So if you move away from monotheism, if you move to tritheism of there being three gods, you let go of monotheism, what happens is you slide into polytheism. You start to see multiple gods instead of one god. But if you hold on to monotheism, but you let go of equality so that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are uh, not equal, but are subject to one another. Now you slide into subordinationism, that um, the, the gods are not equal, and instead the persons of the Trinity uh, are, are not all the same. But if you hold on to equality, but you let go of three persons, so um, what you have is the Father, Son, and Spirit who are representing in different times and different ways the character of God, now you slide into what's called modalism. Most of the illustrations that you've ever heard on the tr- Trinity are modalist explanations. For instance, you've probably heard the Trinity is like water. Sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's uh, flowing water, and sometimes it's mist, like um, like a water vapor. And that's a, that's a modalist explanation because they are all three the same essence that are expressed in different ways. So if you let go of that idea of three distinct persons, you move into modalism. Okay, so that's already hurting our head a little bit. Now let's go into the next picture that will maybe help, uh, help start to put this together. Uh, this, this help? You, you helped? Sarah's helped. Okay, good. That's great. So if you picture God here in the center, what you have around the outside is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity. And uh, what this is seeking to express is that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So you have distinct persons who are all equally God together. We're pushing up against the stuff that we can't get our heads fully around. So now I want to go back into some of the language within the creed and try to unpack some of what that all uh, means and what that is for us. So um, we talk about the idea of a person. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each persons. 
Theologians for years have wrestled with whether that's the best way to express the the personhood of God, the nature of these three persons. And they continue to land on persons because there's a relational aspect to these three persons who are dwelling together. But they, they are, um, as persons, what Thomas Aquinas said is an incommunicable subsistence in the divine essence. How about that? That's, the, that's theology right there. An incommunicable subsistence in the divine essence. What he's saying is these are all distinct persons and yet they exist somehow in the divine essence together, but they're not one another. So that, that, that last illustration I just showed you, that's what it means. That's an incommunicable, incommunicable I can't even say it, subsistence in the divine essence. And then in the, um, in the language, both of the scriptures and of the creed, you have this idea of begotten. Begotten is different than made. So for instance, if I am uh, making a piece of art even a piece of art that looks like a human, a statue, I'm making something that is distinctly different from me. But if I'm begetting something, that's something that's the same. Uh, 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 Lindsay is in the process of begetting, right? Everybody knows that that's kind of what's happening. There's a, there's a, a baby that's coming who is in essence also human. That's, uh, that's the idea of begotten. But the Godhead is not just begotten, it's eternally begotten. So now, stick with me, that means in some way that we can't fully get a hold of, the, the Son flows from the Father, the Spirit flows from the Father and the Son, and yet they always have been eternally. And so they're begotten in that they are the same in essence, but they are flowing from one another eternally. Okay, head hurting? We all good? Okay, excellent. That's, that's, that's great. And, and then we start to kind of press into this idea that, um, that as we think about this relationship, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not just flowing from one another, proceeding from one to another, but they're also constantly in relationship with one another. And it's at the heart of relationship that we start to get to that second question of what does it matter? Because uh, if all this is, is that there's a way of understanding a God who is separate from us, that's one thing. But there's an invitation into relationship that's inherent in the person of the Trinity. And that's the heart of what I want us to press into. Augustine, who was a fourth century theologian, spent much of his Christian life just thinking about the Trinity. Just imagine, like he would just sit around and process the Trinity. Does that sound, uh, for some of you that sounds like great joy, for some of you that sounds like a literal hell. But that's what he did. He just sat around and just thought about it over and over again. And, And what Augustine said, after thinking for literally decades about the Trinity, he said that as we understand through the scriptures, There is an intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. And as the Father and the Son relate together, the bond of their love is the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm just telling you, I can't get my head all the way around that. C.S. Lewis does a great job of illustrations in a variety of different ways. And um, in Mere Christianity, Lewis illustrates the Trinity in a variety of ways. Listen to this illustration where he tries to explain that idea of the bond of love. He says this, the union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know this is almost inconceivable, thanks, Lewis, 
But look at it thus. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trade union, people talk about the spirit of that family or club or trade union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they would not have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into their existence. Of course, it's not a real person. It is only rather like a person. But that is just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and the Son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. So what Lewis is trying to express, what Augustine centuries before him said, was that simple definition of the Trinity that we started with. That the Trinity is in a way that we can't fully get our heads around, an eternal, intimate community of love. That the Father and the Son, together, in love with one another, with the Spirit between them and flowing from them, express the heart of God. I've tried my best with the limited language that I have and the brief time that I have to say, what does it mean? because I really wanna to get to why does it matter? Because all of this in theory is great, but why does it matter? Well, let's go to the very simple question, I think, of why did Jesus come? We come through the Christmas season having celebrated Jesus coming to earth as a person, the second person of the Godhead taking on flesh and moving into the neighborhood. The question is, why? Let me read for you just a couple verses from uh, John 14, once again, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Now listen, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoa. Like, there's stuff like this that we just read over because we're kind of used to these texts and we've read them before. Like Jesus just said that he would be in the Father and we would be in him and he would be in us in the same way that he's in the Father. Like the, the nature of the Trinity impacts us because in some way when you say you're in Christ, when I say I'm in Christ, we're saying that we're stepping into, in some way, that Trinitarian life. So the question is, uh, what, what, what's the purpose of Jesus embodying the love of the Father here among us? Why did he come? Well, quickly, most of us would answer, he came as a sacrifice for our sins, or he came to forgive us of our sins. And that's absolutely true, but it may not be the core. Like, it, it's, it's, on, it's definitely on the target, but it may not be the center of the target. Donald Fairbairn uh, is a scholar who is not just a scholar in New Testament history, but also in the patristics, the early church fathers. 
And he says, when you study the early church fathers, what you see is this move away from justification being the center of the purpose of God, and rather justification being a means to an end. Here's the way that he says it in uh, Life of the Trinity. As crucial as justification is, it is not the heart of Christianity, but rather a prerequisite and a means to something even more central. We are not justified just to be justified. We are justified in order to enjoy something else. Now, now stick with me here a minute because this is where it gets a little bit challenging for us to hold all these pieces together. Justification simply means that we've been forgiven of our sins and that we've been made righteous before God. It's a legal term that, uh, that declares our legal status. It's vitally important. But what Fairbairn's saying is it's a means to an end, not the end itself. So the question is, what is then the end itself? Where, where's all of this leading? Go back to Genesis 2 and 3. We've been there lots of times, so I'm not going to walk back and read you through it again. But the difference between Genesis 2 and 3 is what we would call shalom. Shalom in Genesis 2 is that Adam and Eve, the created human beings who bear the image of God and have been given the, the right to rule and reign along with God in this uh, kind of growing creation. They're, uh, they're called to do things like uh, fill the earth and subdue it and uh, order creation. Th- this fellowship that Adam and Eve have with God in Genesis 3 is broken. The core is absolutely that they sinned, but the problem is not so much that they sinned, but that their sin breaks the fellowship that, dig, that, that signified the relationship they had with God. So you might say it this way, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter two were intimately connected to the Trinitarian community of love that we've been talking about, this eternal intimate community these created beings have been invited into, but by Genesis three, because of sin, they walked away from that community. And so when, when the Old Testament unfolds, and there's an invitation back into the pathways of God through the law and through the promises and through the covenant. And ultimately, Jesus comes to be the fulfillment of all of those things. What's he coming to do? Well, yes, forgive us our sins. Yes, fulfill the law on our behalf. But for the purpose of uniting us back into the Trinitarian fellowship, the community of God. There's a fascinating little book by James Torrance called Worship, Community, and the Triune God of Grace, and he talks about a Scottish theologian. I wanted to give a shout out to anybody who would preach in a quilt. A kilt? Kilt? Quilt? quilt. Yeah, that thing. It looked like both. Yeah, I don't know. It was scary to me. Anyway, um, if you weren't here last week, um, you made a good choice, but you can, uh, you, you can listen. It's way better to listen to than it is to watch. Anyway, um, so the, there's a Scottish theologian um, who has uh, identified the distinction between what he calls the retrospective work of theology or the atonement and the prospective work of the atonement. Listen to the way that, um, that Torrance summarizes it. He says this, retrospectively, Christ came to save us from our past sin, from guilt, from judgment, from hell. But prospectively, he came to bring us to sonship to community with God 
in the kingdom of God. So, so there is a, a both and that is at work when Jesus comes to do this work among us, this retrospective work of forgiving us, saving us from past sin, from guilt, from judgment, from hell. All of that's absolutely true. But also a, a prospective work, a forward-moving work that brings us to sonship into the community with God in the kingdom of God. And when you start to see that, you're going to start to see it everywhere in the scriptures. It's, it's amazing as you start to look at, at texts that you actually thought were primarily about justification, and you start to see the, the beauty of adoption, of, of an invitation into fellowship coming out of it. Let me just read one for you. Uh, this is in the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is actually one of the kind of the core texts for justification and the work of justification that happens through Christ. Uh, but this is in Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What Paul's saying is the, the, the work of Jesus at just the right time came to invite you and I back into the fellowship of the Trinity. Whoa. The, the beauty of this eternal, intimate community you and I have been invited back into through Jesus. And so then what does that mean for us practically? This is why Jesus came and at the core, I think the, the bullseye on the target as to why Jesus took on flesh to become one of us. But what does that do for us? How does this start to move us? Or in the language that we often use, how does this move us from information about who the Trinity is and who Jesus is and why he's come to formation? How does this start to shape us according to the truths of the gospel? Well, if the Trinity is an eternal infinite community of love, then the invitation of Jesus into the Trinity is that we would become people of love as well. The heart of what it means for us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, is not for us to try hard to love people, but that as we draw close to the Trinitarian God of grace, we become loving people. Daryl Johnson, again, in his book, Experiencing the Trinity, makes this statement. The God who is love draws near to me, a sinful mere mortal, to draw, near, to draw me near to himself in order to draw me within the circle of lover, beloved, and love itself. I become a co-lover with God. It is the very reason for my existence. I become a co-lover with God, the one who is the lover beloved and love itself. How does that work? How do I become a co-lover with God? What does that look like? Well, at least these three things. If I'm a co-lover with God, then I'm a lover of God himself. The Trinity is a community that prioritizes at, at first, at, as utmost importance, a full expression of love 
between the persons of the Trinity. God, the Father, loves the Son, loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. There's this full expression of the love of God. And if you and I are invited into the Trinity, then what should be happening is that love of God, we call that worship, starts to flow out of our lives. Not just when we sing songs, not just when we gather together and pray, not just when we're uh, in our own quiet time in the morning or in the middle of the day when an alarm goes off and we remember to pray, but in all of life. Because if we're being drawn into the circle of the Trinity, nothing is outside of that circle. There's not times that are separate from God. Everything is part of that love of God that is uh, the way that I enter in as a co-lover of God, that I enter into the glorification of these three persons of the Trinity. The way the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it all to the glory of God. So worship becomes the natural outflow, not just of uh, what we do as we gather together, but all of the way that we live, the way that I interact with the people around me, the way that I go to my work, the things that I do around my house, the, the hobbies that I'm a part of and the jobs that I step into, all of them are, are marked by worship. So first, we become a lover of God. Secondly, we become lovers of one another. We start to see one another inside of the circle of the Trinity. Like if, if God so loved the world and you that he's invited you into the Trinity, and he so loved the world and me that he's invited me into the Trinity, then the fact that we are both invited into that circle should impact the way that we interact with one another. Even if you're really annoying, or me. I can't imagine it, but just imagine. Like, as, as we interact with one another, and we have tensions and we have frustrations, which will happen because we're humans, we begin to see one another not just as other broken people, true, but broken people who've been invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. We start to see the value that one another has. We start to see Jesus as our elder brother, inviting us as brothers and sisters into the fellowship. And so we love one another in a totally different way, a self-sacrificing way, a, a way that is not just overlooking faults and challenges, but is even pressing into those things to recognize I'm learning from you and lear you're learning from me and God is shaping both of us. So this is the formative power of community. Do you know, if we were all easy to get along with, community would not shape you. It's the fact that um, we're challenging that shapes us. And we commit to one another over a long period of time so that those challenges can become the shaping and the molding that form us into the image of Christ. So we're not just lovers of God, we're lovers of one another. And finally, we're lovers of the world around us. The old saying is that as we draw close to the heart of God, we draw close to what's on his heart as well. So if God so loved the world that he gave his son, that the, the love for the world compelled Jesus to take on flesh and come to earth to invite us back into the circle of the Trinity, that same love should compel us. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
The love of Christ compels us. We start to see the world. He actually talks about the way that our eyes see the world around us. We start to see the world as he does. Because the love of Christ, it compels us, starts to move us toward the world around us. So if we are being drawn into the Trinity, what we should begin to see is this outflow of the joy of the dance of God coming to us as we love God, as we love one another, as we love the world around us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably have those moments where you, you, you sense the, the joy of God as you're in the middle of worship or as you're in the middle of, of community and, and connecting with a brother or sister, as you're loving the world intentionally. As we draw close to the heart of God, there's this joy that wells up within us because it's what we've been made for. Like, if, if you go back to that Daryl Johnson quote, it's literally why we exist, that we've been invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. Seeing God as Trinitarian literally starts to shift the way that we see the world around us because community starts to take a different role. The, the community of God, the community of the fellowship, and the world around us, the invitation into that community. Each week, I want to give you a practice. Uh, we do practice guides throughout the year, but um, each week over the course of the year, we're going to have an individual weekly practice that we're going to step into. And so the practice for this week, you'll find all of these um, on, on the website where you would listen to the sermons. There's an application sheet attached, and you'll find on the application sheet both the practice for the week and the recommended reading for the series. The practice for this week um, is to look at John 13 through 17, so the beginning of Jesus' upper room discourse going all the way through his prayer coming out of that conversation with his disciples. And to read uh, as often as you can, uh, at least three times over the course of the week, read John 13 through 17 all in one sitting. Just take time to read straight through it. And as you do, journal what you hear of Jesus inviting you into the Trinity. What's it, what, what do you hear Jesus saying to the disciples and therefore to us about this invitation in? All right, so I've talked about 37 minutes, 38 minutes, maybe 40. Somebody's keeping track somewhere. I'm not. Um, do, you, do you have a full understanding of the Trinity now? You got it all? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Diego's got it. Yeah. No, and, and see, I, that's, that's the point. We, we, we step into this mystery and it's almost like as we, as we learn a little bit more, we recognize how much more there is to learn. As we get a little bit more of a window, we see, oh my goodness, there's so much more outside of that. And that's the point. That as we come near to God, we will recognize that he's God and we're not. That his glory is greater than we can imagine. And that's true in Bonhoeffer's words of all of theology. That's, in fact, the point of theology, that as we study God, we would recognize that he is far greater than we can imagine. It's interesting that um, what we call ordinances of the church, communion and baptism, were originally by the early church fathers called sacraments. That word in Latin, at its Latin root, literally means mystery. The early church was not focused on trying to identify exactly what happened when we came to the communion table, they were comfortable saying something mysterious happens. I, it's, it's a symbol 
but it's not just a symbol. There's something that happens as the presence of God meets us in the bread and in the cup, as we gather with the people of God. It's It's a mystery, it's a sacrament. And so as we consider the fact that God in an eternal, intimate community is inviting us into fellowship with him, I want to invite you to come to the table and to receive the mystery, to remember we can't get our heads all the way around it. And that's not only okay, it's good and right that finite creatures can't understand an infinite God. And so we come before an infinite God just in awe, in worship.